Welcome to Oxford Plus, the podcast series that takes you deep into the myths and truths of the Oxford investing landscape. I'm your host, Susanna Diaga, and I've spent over 15 years in UK asset management. My guest today is Peter Crane. Peter is the co-founder and CEO of Cerulius Genomics, an Oxford University life sciences spin-out founded in early 2023. The company is supported by influential local angels and international pre-seed funds. Peter has a background in venture capital, and I'm excited to hear his perspective as a founder and an investor in Oxford and beyond. Peter, thank you so much for joining today. I am really excited to have you here because you have the perspective of both a founder and an investor. Starting off, I really want to understand with those perspectives and your wealth of experience, both here and of the US, why did you come back to Oxford where you studied to found a business? Well, I mean, I've I've always lived in Oxford, so, you know, it was quite an easy decision to, to be based here. I suppose for me, you know, what are the ingredients that you need to start sort of a deep tech life sciences company? You know, one of those is really great research. And I think that's something that Oxford has in sort of spades. So for me, I sort of went away for a bit of time. I was an investor. I was, you know, early employed in a number of companies. You know, coming back to Oxford, I was really surprised by, you know, how much incredible science there was here, you know, how... A uh, little of that was actually being looked at, you know, with sort of critical eyes and actually being quite a small city, how easy it was to engage or how open Oxford was to engage with sort of people like me. So um, for me, it was really about those critical inputs into a company and the key input for a life sciences tech company being, you know, sort of great science and great sort of um, academic founding, founding talent. So you have a DPhil in chemistry. Yeah. Uh, how important do you think that scientific background is when evaluating the science. No. Um, I think it's massively overplayed. I mean, so one of the main things I learned from my DPhil is I didn't want to be an academic, actually. It was a great forcing function to realise I didn't want to be a career career researcher. So it actually pushed me to do a number of sort of things outside the lab, you know, starting, you know, entrepreneurial initiatives, working with a number of founders, even back then, you know, 10 years ago. The actual DPhil in chemistry, I think, you know, the main thing I learned was like sort of a love for reading and learning new types of science, less so than the pure chemistry itself. I do think you, know, you are aware if you've done a scientific degree, how little you know, which I think is useful. So certainly for me, I do use my scientific training. Do I use what I learned in my DPhil and organic chemistry and chemical biology? Probably very little. But that sort of love of science, love of reading, ability to critically evaluate science and the ability to talk to academics, talk to scientists I use almost every day. So it's the sort of the soft skills you learn from a DPhil, um, I think, are much more important than sort of the hard skills of, you know, are you technical? And I, yeah. and I do think there's something, you know, that's sort of happened in kind of the last couple of years, maybe in, in venture capital, where, you know, deep technology, frontier tech, you know, it's become a much more important investment thesis. A lot of funds have looked to bulk up their sort of their technical capabilities, you know, and that's maybe how I got my start in VC, you know, I was one of those guys, you know, you can put me on a slide deck and say I've got a PhD, so everyone assumes you can look at technical stuff. But I do think it's overplayed quite a lot. And I think actually what's much more useful is sort of the operational experience after a DPhil of actually how you translate science or technology into a real world application. That's really interesting. And actually, it resonates with something we've already heard, that it's the skills that you get from it rather than the, you, know, you don't have depth in all areas, evidently. And just on that, I mean, like, I think there's a great track record of people that have, during their DPhils, PhDs, you know, master's degrees, MBAs, whatever it might be, have come to, you know, sort of top universities 
and have probably spent more time not doing their course and doing other things, you know, founding or founding entrepreneurial initiatives, running societies, starting small businesses. And actually the university environment is a very safe space to start a company or start an initiative. You know, you get a lot of leeway to do what you kind of want. You know, you get to learn those skills, you know, hiring, firing, growing, pitching. And actually, I think if you look at sort of the, some of the alumni from some of these entrepreneurial initiatives in, in Oxford, a lot of them have gone on to found, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. So I think it's actually, even now as a venture perspective, I always look at those people that are doing those, you know, sort of alternative things outside of their studies and really ask, you know, are these the, the next generation of, you know, unicorn or big company founders? Yeah, I, it made me smile in your uh, kind of blurb that you sent me across the China-UK engagement and speaking, and this is quite niche, at the Paralympics in Brazil, yeah, at yeah, the yeah. UK government showcase. I, 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 that really made me smile. A, because knowing you a little bit, it, I thought, of course he did that. That's just so natural. But you obviously were engaged in these initiatives yeah. right from the off. And what are the skills that you think it's helped you evolve that you're now applying day to day? So I, I think the main one is the mentality, right? It's like a hustle and a grit like of... A lot of founding companies and, you know, working with founders is just getting punched in the face every day and just getting up and sort of just keeping to do that. So it was really about that mindset and it was really about sort of that ability to sort of push yourself outside your comfort zone, you know, and every day just get rejection and just keep going. So actually, I don't think in terms of hard skills, I think a lot of this is like overrated, you know, whether it's pitching or, but it's the mindset of like continuously iterating, continuously getting rejected and continuously just continue to push forward. And I think that's why university is a great safe space to learn those skills yeah. is because you don't really have to worry about paying your bills. So, so you've got like an opportunity a couple of years whilst you're getting a degree from, you know, an elite university to learn those skills, you know, to learn how you do the basics, you know, how you hire people, how you fire people, how you raise little bits of money, how you build relationships, you know, and that's all very much soft skills. Yeah, I really agree. Funnily enough, and this is taking it in a direction I didn't expect to, but as I hear you describe that, and I agree with everything you've just said, you know, clearly that tenacity, that ability to take knocks is brilliant. Do you think that it leads to a personality bias in terms of those that will success. But furthermore, do you think it's represented in the gender bias of people that succeed in raising money and founding businesses? Because that characteristic as a huge sweeping generalization, yeah. I would say is a stronger one in men than it often is in women who take knocks, again, generalizing more to heart. So for me, that's, I suppose, an interesting observation is a lot of the people I worked with in these organizations were women. Mm. And, you know, a number of them gone on to found incredible companies um, or become incredible venture capitalists, yep. actually, one of the two routes that people seem to take. So I'm sure that bias does exist. I've not seen it in my own personal data set. I've actually, you know, probably seen more of the inverse, you know, incredible, That's encouraging. incredible women who are striving and want to compete and, and win. And, you know, that for me, that's, again, it's really, really positive. Wonderful. Another thing that came out when you were preparing for this podcast was you put a huge amount of import, understandably, on the investor base that you've taken yep. on as a founder of your own business now, but obviously from your experience yep. before. What are the most important characteristics for you when you're building your cap table? What are you looking for? What are the additional skills that you absolutely want to see from those people you bring in? So the company I founded, we're a pre-seed life sciences company. Um, so we're very, very early. We raised about a million dollars just to prove out a couple of, you know, early milestones about sort of overfunding the company. So, you know, as a early stage, you know, business, what am I looking for for my investors? Well, I think the first thing I'm looking for is do no evil, you know, <laughs> and don't do, you know, looking for investors that are not going to do things that might harm the company. 
company. So for us, we believe that the best people to be running a company are the founders, the founding team. You know, when we're looking for investors, they can support us across all the different challenges that we're going to experience. So, you know, some of our investors were super supportive in terms of the spin-out process. Other ones have like very orthogonal networks, some into more of a UK investment community, some into the US investment community, some into, you know, more life sciences, some into more technology. So we have like a broad sort of coverage of different networks in the investor base. But yeah, the, the crucial thing at the pre-seed is looking for investors that really understand that you know, we're, we're founders trying to build a big company here. Their job is not to tell us what to do. Their job is to really to act as a sounding board, to sort of steer us and sort of give us an idea of what's happening in the market, but you know, really to back us as people and support us in that process. So for us, we wanted investors that were very orthogonal, were very supportive. You know, we're very aligned with our mission of building a really big, impactful company out of Oxford. And, you know, we sort of found that, you know, we actually found that in a sort of a a kind of a mix of kind of pre-seed kind of angel groups, a UK spin-out VC fund called Credit Fund, uh, Jeremy McFarlane, and then like sort of this range of like sort of super angels, you know, uh, people from Cambridge Angels, ex-partners from OSC, and know a number of individuals who are sort of very impactful people, and again, very supportive of backing uh, founder-driven companies. You speak there about not replacing the team, and clearly that is something that happens how kind of dangerous a threat do you see that as a founder and how much does that drive your your decision making around this it doesn't really factor in on a day-to-day basis at all you know we're an early stage company you know companies die for lots of reasons our job is to stay alive and hopefully build you know something that's big and impactful here you know for, especially for patients but I, I do think it comes down to sort of a mentality in the investor base and in, in this way I think you know some Life sciences investors have a lot to learn from tech investors, where technology investing is certainly a power law driven industry. You know, a lot of the power law driven outcomes are driven by founders. I'd argue even in Oxford, you know, whether it's Oxford Instruments or Excientia or, you know, I mean, you might even argue Nanopore, you know, Gordon's been in there from the very beginning, you know, it's a founder driven company. If you're looking for people to execute quick flips, if you're looking for people to execute a known playbook, I think, you know, having an experienced management team absolutely makes sense. When you're trying to build a company with a much longer term scale, you know, with much more ambitious vision, where maybe the playbooks are not so well established, I think that's where the founder really comes in. And having people that want to back founders, I think is so important, yeah. you know, because at the end of the day, it's founders that build the impactful companies, you know, the multi-billion dollar generational companies, the the Apples, the Abcams of this world. And it's the founders that then build the ecosystems. They return wealth, they support people, and they mentor the next generation entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs to do that. Really interesting that you bring up that mentorship point at the end there, because it's something that I've heard from multiple sources is quite difficult within the UK, because so often our great companies stay here, do a bit of scaling here, and then they end up moving across to America, either to list or because their investors become increasingly the West Coast Americans and they get encouraged to move over or indeed East Coast American investors. It is something that the UK has a bit of a quandary of how do you recycle domestic talent back in so that the next generation can learn from them. As a founder in Oxford, do you see yourself able to stay here and be part of that virtuous cycle? Or do you think it's almost inevitable at some point that you do have to move? Well, I mean, the first point is, I think a lot of the founder-driven companies are still in the UK. So, you know, if it's the AMCAM and... I think what Jonathan's been trying to do to stop that acquisition, I think, is incredible. It just shows, you know, the founder mentality we never really leaves. You know, whether it's Nanopore, still based in Oxford, Excientia, still based just outside Oxford, you know, came down from Dundee. These are all founder-driven. Or oh, wonderful. Founder- You've totally disproven my question. You know, but you know, I mean, I, I mean, I think the larger problem here.
here is like, you know, when you bring in a kind of hired management for a cookie cutter, you know, factory production line way of building companies, rather than sort of the more power law, you know, stochastic way of just letting great people build stuff. I mean, you're always going to get the mentality of how do I get the quick flip? Yeah. How do I hit the kind of both the stage and the geographical inflection point so I can get a... a That's two- really interesting that you're identifying that actually that model is almost adding to the want to head across and list on the NASDAQ and get that quick flip at a valuation that's more beneficial, but that actually backing the founders will have that more virtuous UK-focused outcome. Well, I think the problem is as well, I mean, mean, you know, great companies, enduring companies take a long time to build, right? So, you know, when was Nanpour founded? 2009, 2005, years ago. XINC started off as a consulting company that moved into becoming like the number one AI drug discovery company globally, probably. I mean, these companies take a long time to build. And, you know, for that, I think that you need financing journeys where you really sort of raise, you know, more capital efficient rate, you raise the rate amount for each round. You know, if yeah. your if your investor base is whacking 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars, sometimes even the US even more into yeah. a series A or in some cases a seed round, of course people want to see a, a return on their capital. They put a lot more in there, you know, execute the playbook, get on the market, go do NASDAQ for that, get on the market quickly and then you know get capital return. I mean it's it's a playbook. Yeah. And and in the last couple of years it's made a lot of people some funds. Um, some funds do it very well. There's a couple in London that do it very well, a couple in the US that do it very well. It's made them a lot of money and it's like all, all credit to them. I just think, you know, in Oxford, there needs to be other voices and other ways of building those enduring, found-driven, long-term businesses that then recycle wealth and anchor those ecosystems. And I think for me as a found, trying to build that founder-driven company in Oxford, it is challenging. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Oxford is a challenging place to build a company. I mean, we lack a diversity of early-stage funds. We lack late-stage funds that will then sort of come in a cap table and say, no, I want you to stay here, not sort of seeding to US funds, which sort of mandate maybe a flip. It's hard to hire people here. You know, I mean, the ecosystem's just at that beginning point where we haven't quite got the density of, you know, we've got a number of success stories in terms of amount of capital raised, in terms of some of the early exits we've seen in some of these businesses, but we haven't had a company that employs 1,000 people, 2,000 people. We haven't had that sort of recycling of talent talent that's really sort of important. So, you know, hiring's hard here. Convincing people to come, you know, from London to Oxford is a hard sell when the transport doesn't work. You know, but it's um, a really nice place to live. <laughs> but it's a really nice place to live, you know. And so, so it is hard, right? I mean, but I also think there's an opportunity here, which is I always think you know, what is Oxford's sort of like real strength, right? And Oxford is a global talent aggregator. I think if you look at sort of the kind of the anti-portfolio from people that started their companies in Oxford and left or had the idea in Oxford and moved to London or San Francisco and raised funding and started their companies there or left for six months and then founded their company, I think the anti-portfolio dwarfs the official story here. And actually just giving landing space for people to start here would help solve those issues as well. So It's really interesting. I love this phrase. I've heard you use it before about the anti-portfolio. Yeah. And I'd love to actually be able to get some shape around what it looks like, what the scale of it is, and really to interview some of them. Why didn't they do yeah. it here? What were the problems? Because clearly that's the list of things that we should be looking to to evolve, fix, you know, make sure we supplement. And I do think there's two stories to that. So one, you know, for some of these companies, there is a clear thing around it. If your commercial market is the US, you know, maybe there is a good reason if you're maybe a health tech company that you do need to, you need to be more US centric earlier. Um, I do think there is advantages here. The R&D costs are much lower than the US. So I think you can kind of arbitrage it between the US and and the UK markets, which is fine. I also think other ecosystems in the UK have been much better at retaining local companies, you know, at pre-seed, seed, series A and beyond. And so, I, you know, I, mean, I know there's always this argument that like the US 
US is pulling everyone out, Oxford and out of the UK. But actually, I think we have to look at other ecosystems and how they've retained talent, companies, um, capital in those ecosystems, and maybe ask, you know, what's the missing gap here in, in this ecosystem? So what's the missing gap here well, in I this ecosystem? I don't know. It's a rhetor- rhetorical question. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but again, I think it's, it, if I was to offer maybe an opinion on it, I think it's maybe if you want to have large companies, excluding like, you know, the founder and, you know, all this sort of stuff, you know, and I'd assume we've got that. We've got global talent pool and you assume we have lab space and if we had a WeWork, you know, well, WeWork's gone bankrupt now, so maybe yeah. not a WeWork, you know, whatever the next version of that business model is, you know, sort of more co-working spaces and spaces for companies grow. Assuming we have all that, what we need at the top of the funnel is maybe more shots on goal. Yeah. So, you know, I, I see these things where people are like, you know, we're going to spin out 20 companies a year or build 15 companies a year. And I think in Oxford, there's a little bit of a complacency. Let's add a zero, you know, to those numbers. Yeah. You know, let's say go to 100, let's go to 200. Let's get that pre-seed kind of first check funnel really firing. Mm. Once you've got that firing, you can worry about like the growth funding and, you know, the capital to make companies stay here. But I think, you know, to get that hit, that power law, you have to have more shots on goal. Yeah. And so spit, Oxford spinning out 15 companies last year, whatever it was, I mean, 20 companies is really not, it's just for an academic institute of that size, it's just not good enough. And I think we need to be more aggressive. You know, let's get more at the top of the funnel and let's get more capital at the bottom of the funnel to help get those companies stay here. And going back to something you said earlier about the investors and the, and the scaling capital, you know, this is a podcast that we're aiming as an invitation to invest. You know, how can we draw these people in perhaps that don't know enough about Oxford to feel comfortable, don't think there's a natural point of entry, want to understand more, dipping their toe. If you were speaking directly to those investors, who are the people that you would like to see more of here? And, you know, literally call them out. Who are they? Yeah, I mean, firstly, the point that you raise about there being no sort of entry point, I think is really important. I think a lot of the kind of official entry points maybe are no longer, you know, sort of serving the purpose that that they maybe should have. So when I talk to funds, you know, I I usually tell them, I mean, that the first message is Oxford is open for business, right? And, you know, there is nothing stopping you from reaching out directly to academics, directly to, you know, people in the ecosystem that you want to talk to. There's no, there's no like magical fire around Oxford. You know, the academic community will be delighted to talk to you. Um, Many of them are starved. There's not enough money coming in and the other them got very good ideas and, you know, many have got great graduate students and PhDs and postdocs that want to move into those companies and, and stuff. But in terms of like some of the groups that I think are, really are doing God's work within this within this sort of respect, I think, you know, on sort of maybe more of the startup, you know, sort of more early stage stuff, I think what the guys at Nuclear are doing is really good. You know, they've got a, it's a kind of a more PhD postdoc centric network. They've got access to money, the top labs in Oxford, yeah. uh, the postdocs that would have gone other routes are now thinking about building their own companies, founder-driven companies. I think what's important there is they have access to, um, you know, sort of an incredible US investor base to the top, you know, 20, 30 biotech, life sciences funds, all supporters of that group. I'd also point out groups like Wilby in London, who I think are fantastic. So this is a mentoring and educational organization, which then also builds and invests in companies. So they do courses for postdocs and for PhDs and really helping them to learn what it takes to be a scientific founder. And again, have done Oxford deals as well. So I um, strongly recommend them. In terms of like, you know, sort of other groups, I mean, I think there's like a range of investors investors, you know, they're all, you know, whenever you talk to investors, whether it's late stage or early stage investors, I think the narrative is always the same. We think Oxford Science is incredible. You know, we'd love to get more involved. You know, how do we do that? So I, I do think there's some organizations where I, I really have, you know, a lot of excitement about their models, you know, organizations like Curie Bio in the US, which is a kind of a seed stage uh, investor where they want to put the founder in control. So it's the Exford Rock Ventures team. Let's put the founder in control and let's surround them with a network of CROs, drug hunters, incredible elite level mentorship to help them grow 
grow and build those incredible companies. So it's organizations like that that offer different voices, you know, which I think is really important. And I don't think this is a case of like, you know, saying that, you know, existing things shouldn't exist. I think it's that diversity of voice, it's that diversity of different models, and it's that competition between different models that actually eventually drives, you know, both performance in the investors, but also returns for, you know, for LPs and, and for shareholders. Peter, you've got a wealth of experience sitting across both founder and VC investing space. Can you explain for those listening and for the purposes of these different groups of investors also, what the distinct phases of company growing are as you see them and what type of investor, but also potentially you know, the name of that investor would be going through those stages? You obviously said you're pre-seed, you've got angel investors. What's the next one? What's the one after that? And how do you see that cap yep. table evolving? Yes. So the, kind of the first stage is what I'd call like an inception round or a pre-seed round. Often this is around, you know, forming the core team. This is maybe about proving out some of the core hypothesis behind the business. This could be, you know, entrepreneurs, are, there's, a, there's a US VC that actually has this, I think this phrase that, you know, entrepreneurs are risk killers, not risk takers. Um, you know, it's identifying those kind of two or three core risks your business, normally team and execution risk, usually something around where the business is going to be focused. So in a tech company, you might call this sort of something to get some level of concept market fit before you get product market fit, but identifying that the problem is real, or if you're a life sciences company, maybe determining your disease area or your, if you don't have one, you're more platform technology or showing some early data. If you do, once you've got that, you're then into a seed round, which is, you know, more, now we now have the team, we have the right sort of focus. Now it's on getting that early data that validates that sort of hypothesis for the company. So this is sort of scales of evidence. And, you know, whether you're a if you're a software company, if you're a tech company, this is all very much around killing the major risk, which is usually commercial traction. You know, the moat's much smaller. If you're a life sciences company, this is only around technical risk. You're assuming there's no market risk in those companies, although there often now is. And if you're a health tech company, it's kind of a bit of the two. So, you know, for a seed round, you're often looking at like, how do I kill sort of that major technical risk, you know, in sort of more of a controlled environment? You might be looking for some level of it, kind of external validation. It could be like a pharma partnership. If you're a life sciences company, a platform company, you know, if you're an asset company, it's clearly going to be just purely focused on the science and and running to like the highest level of kind of technical validation maybe you know towards a towards getting into the clinic or you know some level of animal data so that's that's called seed and then series a is really a case of right now we've put the money in we've kind of got those validations in kind of a kind of in a safe environment now let's put the capital in and really start like testing out and proving that out in the real world environment so for series a in life sciences that might be you're thinking about initiating a clinical trial for a tech company that's normally about what they call go to market and really showing out that you've got that kind of product go-to-market fit for your company uh, and for a health tech company that may be more sort of a you know getting through the fda approval process and then you know starting to think about launching maybe have kol interviews and kind of kol enga- engagement happening so the series a and then series b is really about like, more of the same so it's just high levels of proof so scaling revenue if you're a tech company or a deep tech company or you know just scaling through those different scales of you know clinical proof if you're a therapeutics company we spoke earlier about the shots on goal and starting companies here how do you think that the university here could improve those numbers? I mean, you know, on a really basic level, how do we get from 20 to 40? Well, to start, I think you know, if you set the ambition of going from 20 to 40, you're always going to end up with 20. So you have to set the ambition of going for 100. Yeah. And then maybe you get 60. Aim to fail. Yeah, you aim to fail, right? You know, you you, you add a zero, right? As someone, I think it's a, f- a phrase of a phrase I've also nicked from someone in the valley. You know, add a zero to everything, right? You know, to have yeah, this I material. have the same. I always said you can only assume 10%, which is exactly the same yeah. metric. Yeah. So, so you, you really have to go for it. I think one of the major problems here in Oxford is this kind of mantra of like it's a top-down command and control ecosystem versus having lots of voices trying different things. I think if the university wants that to happen, you have to let go. 
little bit. You have to bring in lots of different people trying to do lots of different things. And between the aggregation of all those initiatives, you might get 100, you might get 60, but you'll get vastly more than you have today. If it's just one organization, unfortunately, you know, an underfunded TTO, which I think is a very bad thing, trying to do all of this, it's, you're never going to have that result. You're just going to have you know, more, more of the same. So I think opening up more voices, let's do it like the US where the university is really responsible for patenting and everything else is just a plethora of different organizations, all competing, all a little bit kind of frenemies, all trying to sort of push this through. I think that sort of ecosystem is what drives that 100 companies per year. And, and actually, I do think this is like a little bit of this obsession here with just like the word spin out. I, I do think this is broader than spin outs, right? I mean, I don't think this just has to be companies that are based purely on academic IP. I think every discussion in Oxford always ends up just being a kind of a proxy discussion about life sciences. You know, the world's far bigger than life sciences. You know, there's, you know, a lot of stuff happening around deep tech, a lot of stuff happening in pure technology investing, which, you know, Oxford should be having a stake in. And all of that stuff helps enrich the other core academic disciplines, whether it's, you know, machine learning and bleeding that into different disciplines like you know life sciences or health tech or deep tech or any of those areas so I think a more holistic view and then like open it up is what you what needs to happen yeah that makes a lot of sense and then taking it from the other perspective if somebody is coming into Oxford and they say I want to invest you spoke earlier about speak directly to the academics yeah speak to these people obviously that is there to be done but it's going to be a slow process. And if you are a time poor, you know, family office or potential yep, yep. angel or investor, my fear is that somebody hearing that's going to go, God, you know, that yep, sounds yep. super laborious. What would be the way to expedite that given your experience? Or what is it that we as a community need to be building so that you know, we build the temple and they will come. Yeah, it's a big problem. And it's a problem that we had on that, my own spin out as well, where I sort of naively thought that being a former VC and, you know, done spin outs and startups before, and this would be a, a fast and quick process when it actually took about five months to get out of Oxford. So I think for us, having supportive investors was, was really important for that process. I think there's a couple of things that can be done. So, you know, one is go and speak to other CEOs or other founders that have spun out companies recently. Yeah. I think you'll find there's an incredibly supportive network of people that have all been through the same experience. And many of those will be able to provide tips, tricks, you know, sort of precedents that you can use to sort of expedite some level of your negotiation. I think another part of the problem is, is actually on the investor side. I mean, I think there's there's a real messaging problem, you know, in this ecosystem, which is, They've created a message which is Oxford's hard to work with. Mm. Um, and it's not good enough just to sort of sit there and keep saying that we're the best. You know, at some point you have to show some humility and say, you know, why are people having these views? And let's try and create playbooks. Let's try and create ways for people to work a little bit more easily with us. You know, let's be more responsive to the market. And I think, you know, that's the, unfortunately, there's no easy way here, right? It's on finding crazy academics, encouraging them to go out and do this work. And then hoping that you can push it through. And I wish there was a. I wish there was a expedited route. But I just don't. No, no. And listen, it, it's a fair answer, and it's a truthful one. It's something we've got in the blurb of Oxford Plus. Actually, is dispelling the myths and truths about the Oxford investing landscape. And I think that this is a bit both. It's a myth and a truth. It's something yep. that probably gets more airtime than is yep. fair, because there's a couple of you know headliners that maybe have said yep. something negative in the past. I think that there's also a kernel of truth, as there always is in these things. And we as a community need to focus on that, listen to people, yep. maybe reach out to people that haven't invested in the last five years and say, what would you need to see? What was it that made you, you know, 
pull away from the ecosystem well, and uh, how can we improve it? I think the point just and it's just a myth that people sort of put out there. I mean, Oxford's always, you know, portrayed as this sort of I mean, depends on which publication you read, but in some mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the best, in other words, it's the worst. It's the yeah. glo- global boogeyman when it comes to spin outs. Actually, once you get through the spin out process and the people you're negotiating with are, are nice people. I mean, this is not the bad people. This is just, you know, they have rules and procedures and it's like a bureaucratic beast that you're negotiating with. Once you've actually spun out, you know, pretty harmless and actually quite supportive. So I think there's a lot of stuff there that's really positive. It's just let's make the metric that we measure this not by what's the average funding or how many companies come out here. Let's look at the net promoter score of what those founders of that experience they have. Let's focus on a better founder experience and a a faster founder experience. And actually, let's move this ecosystem from one that's focused on command and control, Mm. you know, top-down metrics to keep the narrative going. And let's focus on like how we improve founder experience. So it's focus on founder service. And I think, you know, just a little bit of that mind shift and cultural shift away from, you know, what can we take to how do we support founders? How do we provide incredible service? I think would, would go a long way to change. And that's not a massively difficult change. This is just a small cultural change that's got to happen. If you can get that in. And there is people that already have that within the TTOs. It's just bringing them to the fore and letting them redrive things, which I think is important. Yeah. It would be great to hear a bit more about your experience of founding Cerulius Genomics about what you're doing, how you fit into Oxford more generally, and yeah, just your experience so far. Yes. So Cerulean Genomics was founded out of Endorms, which is one of the larger medical sciences divisions in Oxford, by myself and a team of three incredible academics, You know, two of which have moved into the business with me to really help drive the company. It was based around sort of an annoyance with certain types of genomic methods. So what we call single cell sequencing and long read sequencing. So Nanopore on the long read side, 10X Genomics and others on the single cell side. But it was based on some frustrations with those methods and the frustrations really born out of a need to look at biology in a new way. So my academic team, supported by a few others in the Oxford ecosystem, had been spent a couple of years really working out how you could design new omics methods to answer tougher biological questions. And initially these questions were in disease is like myeloma, uh, where you need sort of this long read ability to look at sort of large stretches of DNA or RNA. And so, you know, what was really interesting for us was we have a platform technology, we have a number of patents we're bringing out of Oxford, we have a probably one of the best teams globally in this space. But what is this? You know, where do you apply this? And this is always the challenge for, you know, a platform company or a platform technology company is what is the right business model to pair with that technology that we're sort of we're developing. And so for us, you know, we actually raised money to answer that question. So we spent a bit of time really thinking through like tools, diagnostics, therapeutics, and, and actually we really felt that we could build a kind of an exceptional therapeutics company. We felt that there was an opportunity to build something that identifies and de-risks new biology. And for us, that was around RNA. So that's become the company globally that's able to de-risk identify and validate new RNA biology. So we're now a target discovery company. We're a therapeutics company focusing in areas where we, you know, higher met needs. So initially um, some rare cancers. You know, we've got a proprietary technology stack and we're half machine learning and half wet labs. So we're kind of what you might call like a tech bio company. Yeah. Uh, but I just call ourselves a kind of computer enabled therapeutics company. Yeah. Um, you know, we're supported by, you know, incredible, an incredible sub board, you know, incredible investors, you know, being very, very capital efficient. And yeah, it's been going really well and, yeah. you know, pretty good think about raising more money at some point in the next 12 months so um Amazing. yeah so it's it's How exciting yeah no it's really good and look it's, it's tough right but i think again to my point around you know the job of an entrepreneur is to work out which risks to kill in which order yeah. right you know for us 
you know, we sort of sat down and mapped out all the risks to this company. You know, what are the risks about going down this route? What's the risk about choosing the different models? We felt the diagnostics route was just way too, you know, the reimbursement of those products is just way too unclear. But actually, the bigger opportunity really is un- unlocking a lot of the therapeutic opportunities that we think we can get access to. And again, it's nice to see the stories resonating. And I think, you know, there's always this sort of thing where, you know, as an entrepreneur, if you're building a company which you know, I remember when we first started looking at this, you know, everyone was like, long read single cell, that won't work. Why does that matter? It now feels like people are starting to realize that this is a huge market opportunity. And I always sort of say to, I say this to founders, right? I mean, if you're building a company where, you know, in your first pitch, when you've only got a team and you're in a little bit of IP, everyone's going, yeah, this is great. If you're having a really easy time fundraising, you're probably doing the wrong thing because VCs are lagging indicators, not leading in terms of where they look. So yep, as often is the case. Yeah, again, to my point, you know, if VCs are building companies, you know, they're, they're retrospectively building against trends. They're not, it takes founders who are a bit braver, who maybe know the science a lot better to say, well, actually, we're going to build something a bit braver here and let's try and move into a new area which no one's thought of. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You spoke earlier about your academic colleagues and them joining you full yeah. time. It's something I've heard, but not experienced directly myself, that it can be quite hard to go part time, that the academic contracts that people are on with universities can be quite restrictive and therefore the sort of founder entrepreneurial academic balance it's quite binary you've got to flip one way or the other what was your colleague's experience and and do you think that's something that could be improved upon yes so so one moved full-time one moved part-time one's still in the university full-time as a consultant for us again i think the key message here is like you know the academics have power we have to go through like a large conflict of interest process, you know, which is fine. But I do think there's benefits, right? I mean, I think companies, you know, certainly in the in the UK funding environment, you can do much braver science at a much larger scale within a company than you can do in an academic environment. I mean, in many places, you can't pay your postdocs enough now in Oxford to retain them. So if you want to do science that's got a large computational component, if you want to do science that's using you know, like the latest omics technologies, I don't think academia is the right place to be doing them in the UK anymore. Maybe maybe the Sanger in Cambridge, but apart from that, very, very hard. And actually, it, for me, it was just then about how we work with the departments to support them. And I think this is something that really actually made me very cross in the spin-out process was, you know, we'd gone through this whole thing and brought people out of the department, or put some people on consultancy, we'd reduced other people's hours and you know, and I was kind of expecting, kind of, I suppose, naively, kind of like a fanfare from the departments, like, well done, like you spun a company out. It wasn't really kind of like that. Um, yeah. And actually, when you we begin to realise why, it's what are they seeing back from this? Yeah. What do they get from it? You know, they want to have money and capability to support research in their departments. And I, I do think there is an issue where a lot of these departments aren't seeing, well, some of them are beginning to see return from their spin-outs now, but they're not seeing return on day zero or any level. And for us, you know, we set out with that mentality of like, let's think about how we can soft support here. So, and it helps us as well. So access to equipment, you know, we pay for it in one of the Oxford departments where my co-founders came out of, right? And we pay a commercial rate and it helps fund their core facilities. You know, we try and write grants with the departments, which would again help fund some of their people and, you know, Again, bench cost and, and other capabilities. It's easy to work with the University of Oxford if you show you can align to how they think about stuff. Yeah. And you can give them something that helps their focus, which is enabling academic excellence. Again, my view is always you can't, you know, the academic rights are enshrined, you know, so I don't have the ability to block publications. But 
my founding team were in the company. Yeah. So we have a discussion about it, you know, about how, when we're going to publish stuff that was on the academic side that touches on the work that we've done in the company or touches on some of the IP that we've licensed from Oxford in the company. Again, it's about that relationship. Yeah. You know, that would be much harder, though, if I just built a company and my founding team were on an advisory board. We met once a quarter to discuss about what we're doing or once a month. Just, it's not like that on a Slack channel. We talk about stuff every day. You know, it's back and forth, back and forth. And so it's a much easier discussion. Again, because they're not academic founders, they're founders. Yeah. That, that this is really important. They're founders of the company. They're involved in the company. They're not just inception and then step back. No, it's fascinating the distinction you're drawing. And if I try and articulate it, what I'm hearing is you really need to work as a partnership. It has to be mutually beneficial. Yeah. You need to understand, and and you speak about yourself being naive, they're not necessarily going to be 100% aligned with your objectives or isn't it great to have a spin out and that you need to really probably just ask, what can we do for you? How can we make it, uh, you know, the quid pro quo work for everyone? Because how, how ultimately we... it is bureaucratic and these yeah. departments have their own goals and targets and... and those goals and targets are very different from the TTO and the university as a whole and like yeah that conversation of what yeah to your point what can we do to enable academic excellence within your department I think is really really important. That's exceptionally useful to hear from you actually I haven't heard that so clearly articulated before. And look you know this is we're a small company right you know we're like a million dollars raised you know tiny you know imagine what this place would be like if we had 10 top 10 pharma companies here with that mentality. Yeah. How can we enable academic excellence in chemistry? How can we sponsor 20 PhDs a year to do research in that department? Still get the publications, still get the patents, but it's fun. And that's where the positive ecosystem, that's how a rich, robust ecosystem positively affects academic research is because, you know, at, you know industry can fund stuff. Yeah. And it Absolutely. can support, and that's what the scarcity of in the UK is in money for academic research, especially brave academic research, and industry can fund it. And it's just much easier to do that if the industry is in your city. I think that's such a positive note to end on, actually. Thank you, Peter. I feel, I feel like you've brought it to a brilliant natural point. You know, It is mutually beneficial. We do want more people here. It will benefit everyone. And, and I have a favourite saying, which is sort of pie makers versus pie eaters. And yeah. the pie makers just want it all to be bigger because it'll benefit everyone and the paietas are worried about you know their little corner and i think that it's natural for everyone to be worried about their corner it's human nature and it's quite frankly true in some cases but if we can lift everyone into a view where they're looking and they've got to build a mentality how can we make it bigger to the benefit of everyone that's what i would love this podcast to slightly yep. encourage thank you so much perfect thanks for listening to this episode of oxford plus presented by me susanna diaga if you want to stay up to date with all things Oxford Plus, please visit our website, oxfordplus.co.uk, and sign up to our newsletter so you never miss an update. Oxford Plus was made in partnership with Mish Condorea and is produced and edited by Story94.